whether by luck or by design, um, I'm a firm believer in this private equity space of the opportunities that investors can participate in that they couldn't, you know, even just a decade and a half ago. Um, and uh, very excited about the future of it. Welcome to Invest for the Win, where we discuss strategies to win at the game of private investing. Whether you're a novice or a seasoned investor, tune in to hear experts break down complex topics and reveal emerging trends in private investing. Head over to investforthewin.com to find links to these episodes and additional content. Position yourself to invest for the win. Hosted by the founders of FTW Investments, Logan Freeman, Corey Tuck, and Parker Webb. Today on the show, we have Ben Frazier, and Ben is responsible for capital markets at Aspen Funds, having raised $75 million from individual investors. Ben has experience as a commercial banker and underwriter, as well as working in boutique asset management. Ben is a contributor on the Forbes Finance Council. He's also a co-host of the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast. He completed his MBA from Azusa Pacific University and his bachelor's in finance from the University of Kansas, graduating magna cum laude. Today, we talk all about the different types of alternative investments. We talk about the Fed, we talk about development, and it's a really insightful conversation that I think you're going to get a lot of value out. Welcome back to the Invest for the Win podcast. On today's show, we have my good friend, Ben Frazier with Aspen Funds. And today we're talking about alternative investments in today's changing environment. Ben, I have provided a brief overview of who you are and your experience, but tell us through your eyes, starting with how did you get into private real estate funds in the asset management business? Yeah, well, thanks for the intro, Logan, and really fun to be joined on your new podcast, which I'm super excited about. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think, um, how did I get into private equity? You know, I'd like to say it was part of my 15-year uh, plan mm. and uh, had planned it all out. And I saw this massive opportunity and uh, went for it. But it was not <laughs> that way at all. It was more by accident. You know, uh, you referenced I used to be a commercial uh, lender and a banker. And so I did that for a little while and had kind of got to the point where um, I could kind of have this divergence of, you know, try a different path or kind of go down the banker route and become a lifelong banker. And there's, yeah. there's some appeal, appeal to that, right. You know, golf sure. on Fridays and making a decent income, but I wanted more. Um, and I'd kind of already, you know, not really peaked out to, you know, per se, but it, it achieved a lot in a short period of time. And it was like, yeah. I don't, I don't want to just coast and I want to achieve more and had opportunity to join Aspen about four and a half years ago. Um, and it was a good time because, you know, there's, you know, even since then, there's been a big shift of investors to alternative mm. investments. And I think you know, we talk about it more in this podcast, but there's going to be, there's going to continue to be a massive shift of capital to these types of opportunities. And so, you know, whether by luck or by design, um, I'm a firm believer in this private equity space of the opportunities that investors can participate in that they couldn't, you know, even just a decade and a half ago. Um, and uh, very excited about the future of it. Yeah, absolutely. Was there a point in your life when you decided like to make that change, right? For me, I got fired. So it was like, hey, you're getting pushed out and you know, you, you get to decide what you want to do next. But for there's usually like a, you know, maybe something that happened or a point in your life where it was just like, hey, 
this is something that I want to go pursue. And, you know, I said, you, you mentioned it was four or five years ago, right? But like, what what was that? I mean, because look, there is a big appeal to, you know, playing golf on Fridays. Let's be honest, Ben, you still get out on the course on Fridays every once in a while, maybe not every Friday, and, you know, <laughs> a little more accessible, a lot more responsibility, but there is an appeal to that. But what was that? You know, what was that point in your life where you decided to really, you know, make that change? Yeah, I, I think it was, just like you said, it was kind of coming to the realization that, you know, I want more than just this kind of comfort, comfort role, right? I've always been somewhat entrepreneurial um, and had been in corporate world at that point for, you know, almost a decade mm -hmm. and wanted to kind of join arms with a smaller company that I could help grow and kind of bring yeah. some of the skills I'd learned. And so it kind of just really matched up well. It, it was definitely you know, in some sense, it was, it was great because I had like three job offers and totally three different trajectories. Um, and so it's kind of challenging in the sense of like, I didn't know which path was going to lead where, but um, this just felt like the right fit. And the right team is about, you know, we had about 10 staff at that point. And mm -hmm. you know, they had raised about $10 million when I joined. Um, and so we you know, had a proven concept, but hadn't really taken it to that next level. And yeah. I felt like I could help bring some you know, uh, horsepower to it. And it's, it's worked out really well. So it's, you know, looking back, um, you know, there's obviously luck involved in everything we do, but it was also, you know, had, had to take that little bit of leap of faith and mm. I got four kids. And so there's always an element of just, you know, taking, taking risk is, uh, sure. more impactful than someone who's single and, you know, doesn't have as much to lose. So, you know, that was, that was a, a big jump, but it's, it's been fun. Yeah. You talked about horsepower. I, I love that. Right. Like the analogy of looking at it from the aspect of a, of a car or truck or some sort of motor powered vehicle. And what skills did were able were you able to develop as a commercial lender and banker that created maybe some of that horsepower that you brought into the capital markets of Aspen funds? Yeah. You know, even just from starting in the banking world um, from very early on, I knew it wasn't going to be a long-term fit <laughs> because, mm -hmm. I mean, you work with bankers, you know, they're just, they're cut from a different cloth and yeah. they generally have, you have to have a glass um, half empty viewpoint. Generally you, you, you bankers don't get to participate in the upside. Mm -hmm. They only have to protect the downside and they yeah. just get their fixed rate of return on the interest rate. So it's, you know, it's a different way that you view the world. And uh, to me, it just, it became a little, uh, pessimistic and just sure. always look at the negative, but it was a really great training ground to look at what are the key risks in every deal and what are the biggest pitfalls and then how do you mitigate those? How do you get comfortable with those risks and breaking down, you know, and how to underwrite deals. And so there was yeah. a lot of skills that I learned that I'm really grateful that I was kind of forced to, to, to build. Um, but I, I knew eventually I'd have to take that and, and kind of use it and now you have a lot more fun and participate in the upside. So. Absolutely, man. I mean, we just recently hired an analyst from a bank and I'll, I'll tell you what, it's, it's phenomenal. The, the training and the analytical side of looking at a deal objectively and not keeping the emotion in it and just saying, Hey, this fits or this doesn't, and here's why. And being able to analyze those things is is crucial, especially across markets and asset classes and different things that we all you know, are invested in. So Aspen Funds operates several private investment funds and real estate notes for accredited investors. There's obviously several advantages of alternative investment options that are very 
you know, highly attractive. You got high returns, potentially low volatility, you know, it's real estate backed, create liquidity. You know, how did you and Aspen Funds, you know, pick that niche? Like what, what was it? Because, you know, most folks that um, are in the space, you know, that's a highly specialized skill set and niche that you guys are operating in. Now, I know you're branching out as well, and we'll talk about that later on the show, but how, how is that kind of created as a, as a core competency for Aspen? Yeah, you know, so our two co-founders, Bob and Jim, they started this business really not as a business at all. It was purely opportunistic. They yeah. saw an opportunity in the distressed debt space, distressed mortgages as a result of the last, you know, recession, the Great Recession of sure. 2009. And um, at that point, you know, you could pick up uh, these, this debt for pennies on the dollar, and you still can. The the, the discounts aren't as great as they used to be, but sure. Um, you know, at that point it was, you know, you don't have a whole lot to lose. And um, the, you know, kind of model that was, they tested at that point turned out to work very well. And so just from the first fund, it was just a friends and family fund, very small fund, just more as a proof of concept. Um, and from there, it really, you know, they saw, hey, we could probably create a business out of this. Um, and uh, really from there about 10 years ago, just kept building, adding funds, adding different strategies, all within this kind of distressed debt and um, secondary mortgage market. And to your point that one of the big advantages of it, aside from just the, you know, the quantitative numbers is it's a bigger moat. It's harder to get into. There's a lot yeah. of regulation. There's a lot of licensing requirements. You know, we have about 3,500 assets in all 50 states. And every state has different licensing requirements, has different foreclosure um, methods and requirements. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very big, um, it's, it's challenging to break into at a small scale. Mm. So because of that, it's kind of kept some of the cap rate compression you see in other asset classes from, you know, having the same impact in our asset class. Um, and, you know, 10 years ago, you know, it was really, really good. It's still, still good now, but the biggest challenge we're, we're finding in the note space is product flow as, as in yeah. a lot of asset classes, but a lot of what we do on the distressed debt side is what I'd consider counter cyclical. Sure. So it's generally created as a result of a recession a result of distress in the economy. And we haven't had a lot of that for really the past decade. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the consumer is generally in pretty healthy shape. There's not a lot of distress um, in, the, in the debt markets. Um, and so there's just less product available um, and we're you know, scaling pretty rapidly. Um, but, you know, to kind of take it one step back, the way that we've always approached finding opportunities is from more of an opportunistic standpoint. And so we really like to look at what's, what's the macro picture going on in the, in okay. the, in the yeah. world right now. And, you know, what are the trends, the bigger picture trends that, you know, are not going to be, um, you know, I always like to distinguish between the economy and the stock market, right? Some people think those are one and the same. And the, the stock market can have these wild swings, right? We've seen at the beginning here of 2022, it's been hit pretty hard as a result of potential interest rate increases and, and right. the geopolitical crises going on in uh, uh, Ukraine. And so, you know, the stock market is reacting very wildly to that. But meanwhile, the economy is a, you know, multi-trillion dollar ship, and it takes a lot to change direction, right? And mm -hmm. there can be rapid things that can happen, like we saw in COVID and, and big, you know, external impacts. But sure. for the most part, you can predict with some level of confidence 
what's going to happen in these you know, general trends, at least the direction of the trends yeah. for the next couple of years. And so for us, we like to focus on, you know, what are the big things that are going on, you know, if we have the fundamental supply demand, you know, imbalances in these markets and let's go position ourselves to be a beneficiary of those. Let's go find the asset classes that are going to benefit. Let's find the best strategies that are going to benefit within those asset classes and then putting together the best teams to kind of execute those strategies. And so, yeah, you know, that that's kind of been our framework. Notes has kind of fit really well into that. Um, and we continue to do that business, but we're expanding with that same framework into other asset classes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm a big reader of Howard Marks and Oak Tree Financial. Obviously, you know, they're one of the larger distressed debt um, investors in, in the country, I would imagine. And, you know, uh, Howard always says that you never know where we are going, but you better as hell know where you are at. Right. And I think that's the most important thing. And, and that's what you're mentioning here is there's macroeconomic trends that uh, happen and they've probably happened previously. So you better understand history and what actually happens after that. And so, you know, Russ Gray from the real estate guys always talks about, you know, the difference between the financial economy and the real economy. Right. And so I think that's the delineation that you are making. And I agree with you. I, I really do. Because, you know, as the pandemic was happening, we're locked down. We got, you know, record highs in the stock market. That just that fundamentally doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. And so, you know, there's a lot of things to be said around that. And then understanding on the micro level, what you need to go do to actually go position your company, your investment dollars, your investors dollars uh, to get a return on those. Right. And so I think that's a, a great approach and you know, it takes a lot of experience and it takes a lot of knowledge to be able to do that. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, in regards to, you know, finding notes and investing in these, you know, what are some of the top takeaways in regards to what you've learned about finding, operating, selling um, these notes? You know, I'm just really curious, you know, I'm on, you know, full disclaimer, I'm on a wait list for Aspen Funds right now myself, because I'm so interested in this. So I'm using this as a, as a really good way for me to learn as well. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I think it's probably uh, pretty simple. Like it isn't a lot of um, asset classes where reputation and relationships go a very long way, yeah, right? Sure. And especially in our space, to where it's it's a much smaller universe than you know multifamily, for example, um, where it's a very very large industry, a lot of different players. Sure. You know, the, the note space, like there, there's really, I would say, at our level, maybe half a dozen competitors. In, in the U.S. I mean, it's, it's, there's just not a whole lot of competition. There's not a whole lot of players in this space. And so your reputation is very, very important. And so we've, we've really worked very hard to cultivate good trading relationships to where we may not, may not be the highest price. You know, we're going to buy a pool of notes from a hedge fund or, you know, uh, another bank or lender. But we're going to be the easiest to work with. You know, we've never missed a closing. We've never, you know, pulled any funny business. And, and it's, you know, our space is notorious for just some shady actors. Sure. You know, um, and so that's created an expectation that you can just kind of do that and get away with it. But we've just kind of taken the opposite approach. Like, hey, we're going to actually do what we say we're going to do, which surprise, surprise is, is uh, a little uncommon. And uh, just by doing that, it's built a really good reputation for us to where we can get priority access to a lot of pools that maybe smaller players couldn't get or um, our competitors may not see just because they've burned some of the relationships. I think that is so important. You know, as 
managers, sponsors, ourselves, and you're you're in the same boat. You know the value that you're really bringing to investors is the opportunity. Yes, you need to operate it. Yes, you need to vet it. All those things, but these are opportunities you cannot find by just surfing the internet. You have to have some sort of relationship, typically with a group like Aspen or FTW or any of the other groups out there. I think that's really important. And I love that you mentioned the uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Munger, Buffett, um, you know, ideology of, of, of a moat, right, uh, behind that. Because, you know, in the private investing space, there is a moat, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a moat to getting the opportunities. And so one thing I always urge investors to say is, how did you find this opportunity? Ask that question because yeah. <laughs> typically on the other end of that, if it's, well, you know, I, I just, you know, I want a highest and best, you know, it's like, okay, that's, that's something I guess. But, you know, when you really want to hear is somebody say, well, you know, I know this guy's cousin and I go to church with him and yeah. I'm on a nonprofit board over here. And through all those, you know, we had a meetup the other day and we started talking and here's the opportunity. That's what gets me excited about these things because, yeah. you know, creating a moat around the actual opportunity itself is, is crucial. What's been your experience with that? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I think it's not to say that a deal that's on the market and is you know being bid out is going to be a bad deal, but I'm with you in the sense that generally, when you can find something through relationships, and there's going to be, if if only you know for the sense of you can have a little better confidence in when you're evaluating the financials, or evaluating you know the rent roll or whatever it is, you're going to just have a little bit more warm and fuzzy on it, you know, Yeah. but it's definitely a yeah, relationships matter And it to pull another, you know, buffetism. I think he says um, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and one bad decision to ruin it. You know, that, that, that haunts me because especially in our space where there is you know, the private equity world, a lack of transparency, you know, trust is everything. Reputation is everything from investors, especially um, that, that terrifies me. And I think it, it, it translates into, you know, when we're finding deals as well as, you know, you want to make sure, um, you know, you didn't just go, you know, find this one deal on LoopNet or whatever, and, you know, no external uh, validity to the sure. To the yeah. Deal. That's a good, those are good points. Yeah. I, I, reputation is, is everything. It's, it's really easy to, to lose that, uh, with a lot of people very quickly. And, you know, when thinking about, some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen with people kind of getting started with investing into commercial real estate, notes, different funds. Um, what are some of those mistakes that you see and what are some pitfalls that people can maybe avoid? Yeah. You know, you kind of mentioned it. It's a lot of these opportunities. There are moats around them, you know, yeah. and you can, a lot of people try to make the jump from, you know, single family flips and doing the, the Burr method, right. And from bigger pockets. And then, translating that to smaller multifamily and keep scaling it up. And I think there's people do that. You know, we both know people that have done that and scaled up, um, but it's getting way harder to do it now. Right. And when you think about what it takes to make a syndication or a fund in this space work, there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that you gotta, you'd be really good at, right. You have to be really good at underwriting. You gotta be really good at sourcing, probably the most important right now and having the relationships and vetting. And then not only that, you have to be very, very quick to react and you have to put up a lot of earnest money. You got to put up a lot of non-refundable deposits right now. Yep. And then you got to be able to close on time. So you have to have relationships with bankers. You got to have relationships mm-hmm. with equity sources. And then you actually have to operate the deal, right? And so there's all these pieces of the puzzle that people I think don't think about, right? And a lot of times you're only good at one or two of those. And so, you know, I think it's better to partner up with people and whether that's doing it actively 
or just investing passively in a syndication yeah. or with an experienced operator, a lot of times you're going to get the same or better returns than you would doing it yourself. You don't have to do any of the work and you can benefit from kind of economies of scale or kind of from that, that moat to your point of jumping in with people that already have those relationships that, you know, you've, you've spent years and years building your network in Kansas city and, right. and abroad yeah. to have all the deal flow. And same with us. It's like you, you can try it yourself or you can go with a proven operator and shortcut the process and probably do just as good without the headache. Yeah. Well said, well said, hypothetically speaking, Ben, if you had a hundred million dollars and you could allocate that this year, which, you know, Aspen funds very well might uh, be in that scenario. Where do you, where would you allocate that right now? Yeah. Great, great question. Fun question. Yeah. Um, to me, I mean, you know, the banker side of me says, well, it depends on the strategy and what your goals are and all that kind yep. of stuff. But you're looking purely from an opportunistic standpoint, where do I think you're going to get, you know, the best risk adjusted returns. Um, you know, some of the asset classes we're really excited about right now. I mean, we're still excited about multifamily, um, very excited about self-storage. Uh, we're excited about industrial. Um, and then kind of more of these opportunistic or kind of acyclical assets, which include notes. And uh, we're actually getting into venture debt, um, which is kind of a whole new non-real estate asset, but yeah, a yeah. pretty cool opportunity there. So we're, those are kind of our kind of big, you know, uh, pillars that we're looking at right now that we feel like the secular trends are very positive. The um, kind of the macro trends, you know, mm -hmm. to earlier point are supportive of, of the growth there. And then kind of within those asset classes as a subset of a strategy, we're very, very bullish on development right now with, with the right parties in play yeah. and the right risks mitigated. Uh, we think development opportunities um, are going to provide the best risk adjuster returns. You know, as we've both seen in these, you know, multifamily deals and, and other asset classes where value add, you know, is, is a loosely thrown around term. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, you're taking a lot more risk than a lot of people think uh, to get the same returns that you were trying to get a couple of years ago. Uh, you're taking more risk. And so, you know, we're, we're being more selective on those types of deals we do, but the, the cap rates um, and kind of the other, you know, risk metrics have not compressed as much on the uh, development deals. Yeah, you know, I'm seeing the same thing and, and we've kind of shifted a lot of our focus on, on looking for those opportunities as well. And, you know, one of the things I, I think that people miss out on or forget was you know, value add multifamily used to have higher cap rates than stabilized. You know, like that was there, that was, there was a time when that was the case and we are not in an environment right now that that is the case. And so when it boils down to the risk, you, you think about core, core plus value add and opportunistic, you know, that the risk goes, you know, up as you move, you know, down the spectrum of those. And so, um, you know, thankfully, you know, folks like yourself understand that, but I think on a wild, wider scale, it seems to me that, um, not everybody is implementing that same, you know, methodology because, you know, the last time I saw a value add deal come by my desk that said, you know, value add, it's below replacement cost. I was like, okay, yeah, I mean, that's great. It should be, you know, but that I'm not sure that's a, a value add component of this real right. estate 
you know, that we're looking at. So I think it's being fluid. I think it's understanding what's going on in the marketplaces. You know, real estate's hyper local. You really have to know, you know, what's going on in your market. And, um, you know, it's not the same that's going on in maybe a gateway market or, or Phoenix, Arizona versus Kansas City, Missouri is very different. And so the strategies and the thesis that you implement in those different markets needs to reflect you know, what, what you're seeing. And so I think that's really important to, to note and just call out. 100%. I mean, part of the challenge with investing with just life in general is that what's worked in the past doesn't always work in the future, mm. right? And there's, you know, elements that you can translate, but a lot of people I think get stuck in this kind of value add is the best way to generate returns in multifamily, right? And I think, Yes, it's a good strategy. It's been proven. It's done very well. But you know, if you look at a lot of the returns or the, the deals that have gone full cycle, you know, in the past year or two, a lot of those returns uh, were generated by cap rates compressing massively, right. right? And so I think it created a a almost false expectation from the investors that oh man, I just got a thirty IRR on this value add deal. So the next deal that I do, I'm expecting you know, at least a 20 IRR and a value added, but you're not going to find that anymore because right. the cap rates have compressed and you're also taking more risk. You know, what if cap rates revert? A lot of times, you know, you have to take more risk in, in finding, you know, maybe deeper value add uh, opportunities that have bigger rent bumps, but also bigger risks in, um, you know, CapEx budgets. And there's other risks we're taking right now with like the construction costs are inflating yeah. you know, big time right now. And, uh, another thing. So it's, it's all, you have to look at it objectively and, and realize as an investor, is this going to be the same that it has been? I'd argue it's not. And, you know, where can I find better risk adjuster returns? And yeah. 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 It reminds me of reading Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights, when he's like, let's get relative, you know, and Ray Dalio, when he says you have to deal in reality and what, what, what we're dealing with right now is not the same that we were dealing with 24, 36 months ago. And not only have cap rates compressed, you've got double digit rent increases that also cannot probably continue to be sustained. And so you have both of those things happening at the same time, which if you bought at the right time, all you had to do is hold and then remarket the property. There's not a lot of value being created there other than the opportunity to buy right at the right time. So now we're just talking about timing the market, which you know Howard Marks says is the worst thing that you can try to do. And so I think that you have to step back, be objective, be rational, get relative and deal in reality. And that's the way that you can find new opportunities that are always changing in these marketplaces that we're talking about. Hundred percent. I th I think the other kind of you know not to get too much in the weeds and these types of, of uh, things, but there's other risks too, which is you know capital stack risk and yeah. a lot of deals I've been seeing to get the same returns that they were getting a couple of years ago are doing a few things. One, they're doing br bridge financing, um, which inherently isn't evil or bad, but it's more expensive and you have interest rate risk uh, because they generally have three year arms, so the, the interest rates adjust after three years and you can buy interest rate caps. You generally have to buy them, but they're very expensive. So yeah. it, it dilutes your investment. And then two, a lot of, a lot of these deals are putting what's called pref equity on the capital stack. So it's, you know, basically a, a junior uh, investor above the senior mortgage, but senior to the common equity. And if you're coming at the common equity level, you're, I'm seeing these deals that are based effectively 90% leveraged. 
right? Well, if you put 90% leverage on really anything that's going to produce good returns, but you're taking way more risk. If, yeah. the, if the value of that property drops by 10%, all your common equity is wiped out. Hmm. And so I think a lot of people aren't thinking about the capital stack risk as well, yeah. from not, not just the cap rate risk and the, the market risk. You have to be looking at the capital stack and really diving into that um, to understand the other risks you're taking in these deals to generate the same returns. Great points to be made there. You know, more specifically, I'd like to ask you about the different strategies that Aspen implements in regards to growth and income. And so when you think about growth funds versus income funds, what is that difference and what are the benefits or, you know, necessarily draw downsides to, to each one of those strategies? Yeah, you know, our, our kind of segmentation between growth and income is really more for investors to kind of help them select, you know, where the opportunities are going to be a best fit for them. Yep. You know, and some of them are going to have a little bit of both, um, but we like to have both because different investors have different priorities, right? Sure. An investor who's, you know, near nearing retirement or in retirement, they, they need income. And it's really hard to find, you know, good income producing investments. <clears throat> and so notes actually are a really great opportunity for that. They, they provide really good income um, and really kind of above market yields for the risk you're taking. And, and then on the growth side, you know, we have some of our, our, our note funds that are kind of more growth oriented. And how I kind of look at that is you're taking a little bit more risk. And generally that risk is, you know, a, a riskier strategy, but also you're not getting cash flow early on, um, but you are going to get a bigger upside. And so yeah. you know, the potential, you know, is um, uh, there for a home run, but it, it could be a double, it could be a single, it could be a strikeout. You know, that, that's kind of... you. You know, to your earlier point of the a scale of you know risk return, um, that's kind of how we view it. And so, yeah, our, our our funds usually fit in one of those two buckets. Sometimes there's like a hybrid um, where we do, you know, an opportunity has a little bit of both. But that's kind of how we how we view uh, the opportunities we put out. So really, you know, sitting down with investors and understanding what their goals are, and then aligning those goals with different types of strategies within investing in notes is what you're saying. Yeah, and it's uh, exactly, you know, investors, you know, we're fiduciaries um, as operators. We're not financial advisors, so we can't give them financial advice, but we want to make sure that it's going to be a good fit for them. It's going to match their needs. And on the very first call we have with investors, we, we very clearly say, hey, this may not be a good fit for you. We may not be the right fit of what you're looking for. And that's okay. Let's dive into that to make sure because one, we don't want your money if we're not a good fit because- you know, it's, it's not going to be a good match and it's going right, to right. You know, create more work down the road. And, and two, we want to understand what those goals are so that we can better serve you or put out new opportunities when we're, you know, having conversations down the road. This is a long-term relationship, right? When you're building with, with an investor or with the sponsor and you want to make sure you feel, you know, from an investor standpoint, you want to make sure the sponsor kind of gets your situation, knows yeah, what you're you. looking yeah. for so they can, you know, be thinking about that when they're, you know, discussing current opportunities or future opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. And let's move into some predictions. So in regards to the private investing space, you know, this year, you know, what are your top three predictions that you're seeing? Either, you know, opportunities that you're really focused on or, you know, different trends. I know uh, you, Aspen Funds is a leader in regards to understanding macroeconomic trends and then being able to actually facilitate conversations based off of those. So let me dive into that brain of yours a little bit and understand what are some of those, you know, predictions and trends that you're seeing. 
yeah, you know, none of mine will probably be that shocking, but we're actually, you know, doing stuff about them. So I think yeah. that's probably the difference. Maybe, you know, one is inflation, you know, in um, people missing the headline inflation numbers, you know, the seven plus percent range, that's, that's huge. Right. And one thing we like to say on our podcast and just with investors is inflation is not neutral. You, you don't, you either are a beneficiary of inflation or it is eating your lunch because right. if you're sitting on cash, that cash is uh, decreasing its purchasing power by 7% every year. And so it's inflation is really a transfer of wealth from savers to borrowers. Mm. So we're actually a very big proponent right now of using leverage to purchase inflation protected assets. Yeah. Now you want to be careful about that because you want to, you have to have fixed rate debt, number one. Um, and number two, you have to be able to, you know, have a reasonable way to debt service that and, and grow into the cash flow and, and sure. yeah, have inflation protected um, assets, which we get into. But that, that, that's a big um, kind of focus for us right now. And so all the asset classes I listed earlier, you know, multifamily, self-storage, industrial, we feel those are all very, um, uh, will be benefit from the trend of inflation. And we think inflation is a combination of, you know, being, you know, the supply chain challenges that we're seeing and that will probably be seen for the rest of this year and into yeah. next year, as well as the, the crazy um, demand side of the equation, right? Which has been caused mostly by stimulus and uh, just capital that is looking for opportunities to invest in. So mm -hmm. we, we, we think, um, you know, inflation is going to be here for a little while um, and it's probably going to taper off and probably, you know, slow the decline because, you know, before COVID happened, we actually were um, more in the kind of low growth, not much inflation. There's actually some major deflationary trends going on in our economy. Right, right. And they're still going on, which is what's really weird about this whole um, environment we're in. But at, as, at, a, at the whole, you know, we're seeing inflation and position yourself to be a beneficiary of it, not um, uh, let it hurt you. Um, the other side of it is just kind of more fundamental is there's massive supply shortages, especially in housing and, um, and in industrial. And so you know, some of the, the, the kind of more fundamental trends we're tracking is like on the single family side, as well as the multifamily, mm -hmm. um, there, there's just been underbuilt for the demand that is there and that will continue to, to grow. Um, especially in the single family side, which is, you know, we've been saying for, for 10 years that single family is going to be keep going up, you know, and because yeah. there's been so much supply shortage. And as we see household formation start to take place more in the kind of the millennials and um, people generally want to start, you know, owning homes at that point um, and just other demographic trends that are, you know, people want more space than just living in apartments because they're working from home more now. These these things are changing the kind of consumer preferences that are causing more demand. Then on the flip side of that, you have rising home prices, you have yep. rising interest rates, which decrease affordability. So you're going to have continued demand for renters. And so, um, you know, we think multifamily is still very well poised to, to perform well for the next few years. And then on the industrial side, we're seeing um, uh, kind of this massive reshoring trend. You know, so back when we were in school, you know, the big mantra in, um, logistics was just in time inventory, right? And so basically you can create this perfect uh, supply chain to where you can get a, you know, some steel from this country and this here within X number of days. And right. it's this real sweet, you know, succinct supply chain. Well, COVID threw that, 
a huge wrench into that, right? And uh, we're seeing massive supply chain challenges, which is causing inflation. And so a lot of these bigger manufacturers, um, bigger e-commerce companies, they are they don't want to take that risk anymore, right? Uh, Ford, right. they have, you know, they're producing all these cars. There's massive demand for, for cars right now. They can't produce them because they're missing these little chips that so they can't put them in, in the car, right? So right. Yeah. what's it worth for, for Ford to go build more warehousing to store the chips in the US so that they have access to it quicker? It's worth a lot to them, right? And so we're seeing the same thing with Amazon. A lot of these big companies, they want to reshore and so there, there's a, a, a huge demand right now for large industrial because of that trend. Um, so that's what we're seeing. And then, you know, kind of on the um, demand side of the equation, we, we see there's, there's still a massive amount of demand from, from investors for uh, uh, real estate assets and inflation protected assets. So we think we're not going to see any major cap rate reversion, at least in the next couple of years, even though interest rates are going up. Um, we're still in negative real interest rates, uh, which we believe is a, a positive force for uh, assets. Sure. Um, because effectively, you're getting paid to borrow money if uh, your interest rate is less than the inflation that's happening and you're inflation protected. So we're, uh, we're still pretty bullish on um, you know, a lot of these asset classes that have some of these, these kind of trends supporting them. I'm reading a lot of reports on, you know, um, what the Fed might do in the near future. And just really curious from your background, obviously you have to, you have to understand from a capital market standpoint, you know, maybe what that federal funds rate will go up to or what they're saying versus what they're actually doing. And I've been reading some books on it as well and talking to a lot of people, but you have an outlook in regards to maybe what happens in May and then the following you know, um, meetings, the FOMC meetings that will happen. I'm curious, I, I just picked up Paul Volcker's book that, uh, you know, he recently wrote a couple of years back. And after watching him and Ray Dalio sit down, I was like, I got to really dive Ooh, in. I need to read that book. You got to tell yeah. yeah. There's a, there's an interview with Paul Volcker and Ray Dalio, which I think is really great, but Paul wrote his recent book. It's kind of an outline of his life, but, you know, really saying you know, he got kind of a sort of, you know, a bad rap because, you know, he raised interest rates all the way, but he also had the kahunas to do it um, when maybe a time that we needed it. So I'm just curious, you know, I've, I get a lot of asks from investors and folks that are looking to buy real estate, you know, hey, what, what should I be thinking about in the near future? What if interest rates go up, you know, a half a point or a full point? Like, what's that going to do? What, what's your outlook look on that? Yeah, oh man, if, if I knew I, I would just be investing like a billionaire, I'd probably be a billionaire at this point. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, to the earlier point, no, no one knows. But I think, you know, you can look at indicators and you can make make kind of an educated guess. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the, the current reserve um, uh, kind of folks that are running it right now, like they've they've tended to be more dovish versus hawkish, where Paul, Volcker would be considered an extreme hawk, right, where he's... Mm -hmm. He doesn't, the, un, the unintended consequences of raising interest rates are less important um, than it seems it is now. And I think, you know, the Fed has become a much bigger force than it was in the 80s. It's everyone's watching them. There's a lot of eyes on them. They have a huge balance sheet. And, uh, you know, they've kind of become this pseudo political force as well, right? So there's kind of all these political ramifications of, well, we've got midterms coming up this year and well, if we crash the economy, that's not going to look good for the Democrats. Right? right. So, you know, maybe let's be a little bit more 
um, dovish in the way that we're approaching this. Uh, I mean, already they've been saying we're going to bump interest rates up and then the Ukraine crisis happened and they still did it, but they did less than what a lot of people were thinking was going to be, right? Um, and they're indicating more, more rate hikes um, soon. Yeah, I think they'll, I think they'll do them, but what I ultimately think, you know, the, the, the bigger challenge is going to be, you know, everyone's watching the yield curve is the yield curve going to invert. Um, you know, one of them did, I forget which one it was just two in 10 years. Did the two in 10. Yeah. So obviously people are concerned about recession. Um, the, the, uh, yield curve inverted before COVID and then we had a, you know, a recession, but yeah. you know, very short recession, but when that happened, the Fed dropped the rate back to effectively zero again, right? So they they, and they, they knew they had to get a little bit of uh, of uh, room anyway, on, yeah. on the rate so that they could have a lever to pull. And I think they're going to do the best they can, but I think they're going to be they're going to be challenged. Um, I think you know you look at it on a global basis, the trend has been generally going more towards negative real rates, right? We've been in negative real rates now for a little bit. Um, I think that's more likely the direction we're probably going to go than the other direction. Yeah. You know, I think uh, um, I would be shocked if, if they, you know, pull a, pull a Volcker moment and, and raise rates to the same degree that um, he did back in the eighties. But also back then we had uh, inflation that was in the high teens, low twenties. Right. So That's it's, right. Yeah. it's also relative again. So I remember mortgage rates were like 17%, no joke. Like yeah. go Fannie and Freddie wherever you're getting your debt. And that's what you were paying. That's wild. We're talking still four or five right now, whatever it actually is. Right. 17 then. This is a totally different story, right? Totally different story. So that 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 matters. And then I think back again to the other point of we're, we still have negative real rates. So they're yeah. increasing rates. They increased them 25 basis points. Well, inflation is still 7%, you know, right. not slowing down. Yeah. So they, they have to raise rates by a very big amount to just get back to, you know, real positive interest rates. And that's, yeah. that's what I think a lot of people aren't thinking about is, is in a vacuum because this is all relative to inflation. And so if inflation drops back down to two or 3% and then interest rates are now five, six, seven, 8%, that's, that's a different, that's a different story. That's more concerning from a cap rate standpoint, as long as real interest rates are negative, I don't think cap rates are going to be moving a whole lot uh, reverting. Yeah. You know, there there's always the Tina argument, which there is no alternative. And so where is capital actually going to go? Some might say that the Fed is the creature from Jekyll Island. You know, here's a couple of things to think about. You mentioned the Fed's balance sheet. I think it's really interesting that, you know, um, you know, the Fed's balance sheet, you know, they have debt to service. And if interest rates go way up, you know, how are they going to service that debt? Well, are you going to raise taxes? What are you, what are you going to do? We need to increase productivity as a country. That's the first thing. But, you know, they have to be careful, too, with, with raising interest rates super high because they, they have to service their own debt. And I think that's uh, another big point that, you know, folks need to be thinking through as well as, you know, the other end of the spectrum where what makes their debt smaller? Well, keeping inflation high. And so why have they not raised interest rates way sooner? 
trying to dilute maybe some of their balance sheet. So there's a lot of things at play here, a lot of things that folks need to be thinking about. Nobody has a crystal ball, but you can look back in history and understand because things typically have happened before and you can position yourself in what Ben is saying, which is you know inflation protected investments. You know, using leverage is a great tool to do that. Fixed rate leverage, I will say. So I really appreciate that, Ben. That's not an easy answer or question to answer. And, and you did a great job, man. So just want to transition to our last segment here and learn more about you and what inspires you, Ben. I know you've got a beautiful family, you got four kiddos, but tell me a little bit about, you know, what, why, why do you do what you do and what, what's kind of the inspirational force behind what you're doing on a regular basis? Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, I think, um, one, I'm just having a lot of fun. So yeah. it's, it's fun doing what we're doing, right? It's, it's, uh, it's an exciting time to be alive. I think, you know, it's trying to navigate these very unique environments that we're in and trying to, to position yourself to, to be successful. It's, that's exciting, you know, but I'm, I'm a man of faith. And so my faith drives a lot of, um, you know, just the inspiration that I, I take to do what I do. And it's not, not just for me, it's not just for, for more stuff. Um, you know, I want to provide for my family. I want to, you know, leave a legacy for my family, but my, my goal is much bigger than that. Right. There's a certain point where it's like, once I hit that, that goal, then it's everything else is incremental and it's not going to mean a whole lot. I don't need another big boat or something. And sure, you know, I, I really want to have an impact and I want to help people that, you know, didn't have the opportunities that I, I had and you know, help those that are less fortunate and, and bring change in the things that I believe in down the road. So yeah, I'm, we're both still young and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, not, not at that point yet where I'm kind of, more focused on legacy than on wealth sure. building, but that that's kind of the undergirding, you know, uh, inspiration for, for where I want to eventually go. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, I think that's fantastic. Ben, just in closing here, anything that you wanted to speak about that we didn't get to cover? No, this was fun. I got into a lot, a lot of good stuff and uh, yeah, I think, you know, we're generally aligned in a lot of areas. So it's, it's fun to uh, kind of track with you on, on some of these bigger trends. Yeah, absolutely. Well, point people where they can find you and more about what Aspen Funds is doing on a regular basis. Yeah. So we have our podcast, Invest Like a Billionaire. Um, you can go to thebillionairepodcast.com or just search for it on iTunes, Spotify, and then aspenfunds.us uh, to check out some of the other stuff we've got going on. And uh, yeah. That's the best. Beautiful. One. Awesome. Ben, thanks for your time and insights, man. I know our listeners will find this valuable. I surely did. Awesome. Thank you, Logan. I appreciate the bringing me on the show. Thank you for tuning in to Invest for the Win. If you found this episode valuable, please take a moment to share it with a friend you think could benefit from the insights of our experts. Also, don't forget to take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Visit investforthewin.com to learn more.